I'm Rob Nesbitt and this is episode two of the Nezzy on Brass podcast. In this episode, Nigel Seaman talks to Andrew Jones, who's also known as Genghis, about his 40-year career as a professional musician. Before I hand you over to Nigel, a quick word about the Nezzy on Brass newsletter. If you subscribe to our mailing list, you'll receive a regular newsletter containing information on the latest blogs, podcasts and competitions that we will run. I hate receiving thousands of spammy emails when I sign up to a website, so here's my promise. We will only send out one or two per month at the most. Guaranteed. You can find the sign-up link on the right-hand side of the homepage. Just click through and you'll only need to leave your email address. Today's podcast with Andrew Jones had to be done on two separate days, part due to the weather and partly due to the venue. This was my fault. A fire station is generally quiet, but there were several fires in the area that evening. And as such, we had to split the dates and then I had to splice it all together. As a result, you'll notice some difference in the background and sound quality. Anyway, enough of my technical excuses and inadequacies. Here's Nigel with our guest. It's time now to meet my guest on this edition of Nezzy on Brass, and this time it's Andrew Jones, who's also known by many people as Genghis. Well, Andrew's played with various brass bands in South Wales for the last 40 years or so, and he's also a conductor and tutor. He's a professional musician and offers several services, such as music for weddings, on his website, andrewjonesmusic.com. Now, I've worked with Andrew on many occasions in several bands I've conducted in the past, including Tradiga and the Park and Dare Band. Well, hello, Andrew, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nigel. Yeah. Now, before we start, and I want to know, and no, no doubt many people, how on earth did you get the nickname of Genghis? Because you don't, you don't look like a Mongol emperor, do you? Uh, no, it's a, it's a very simple story. There's no history to it, apart from the fact that I, um, the people who named me, I knew from the National Youth Orchestra of Wales, and then I went on to become a student of the Welsh College of Music and Drama in Cardiff. And on my very first day in college, I was walking through the common room, and one of the guys, Alan Reese, no less, shouted out, Oi, Genghis! And I went, Yes. And that's how it stuck. And I've been known as Genghis for the last uh, so many years, such that uh, my goddaughter still calls me Uncle Geng. Well, well, everybody does call you Genghis. I, I've never known whether to call you Genghis is sort of almost rude. I, I've always used to call you Andrew, haven't I? Uh, I have two persona, really, so yeah. some people call me Genghis, <laughs> some people call me Andrew. So. Yeah. Well, you give us a little bit of an idea of where you've come from. Could you, a bit more of a background, as to first of all, you're playing, you know, where, where did you start playing? Uh, I started playing, uh, as Spike Milligan once said, at a very young age. <laughs> um, I was seven, and uh, it was Crubin Silver Band, um, back near Carmarthen. Uh, my uncle, Stan, taught me to play. It was a family thing. Dad played in the band, my cousins, uh, uncle conducted, and it just was the right thing to do. It was a, a very small village, and going to band three nights a week, even in the fourth section, three nights a week. It wow. was a, yeah. Back to Halcyon days there. Yeah. Uh, so started there, continued having lessons in school, and then went on to uh, Welsh College of Music and Drama in, uh, in Cardiff. Was it the Royal Welsh player? No, 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 no. Oh, yeah, that old? Yes, that old, yes. <laughs> Just like yourself with the Manchester College. Ah, I'm a Royal Manchester, yes, before the Royal Golden, yeah. yeah. 
Okay, so that's brilliant, but that's a bit early playing. Now, we also know you, of course, as a conductor and teacher. Which came first, the conducting or the teaching? Oh, very much the teaching. And um, uh, I didn't uh, go straight into conducting. I just sort of bided my time a little bit and watching and learning. Hmm. Um, so you could pick up a stick but not know what to do with it. There's <laughs> another thing. I'm still learning now. So. Um, well, the day we stop learning is the day we... Exactly, we're in a yeah. box so right, isn't it? My yeah. first, first band actually conducting was um, Blanavon Town Band um, and at the same time was doing some work with the uh, Tredegi Youth Band so following on the footsteps of uh, Nigel Weeks was quite big shoes to fill really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, perhaps you'll talk about conducting a bit later on I suppose but uh, you talk about the family side of it. If we go on to when you were at music college, yeah, what was it like for you in those days? Culture shock. Really? Uh, yeah, very much so. Uh, leaving home and um, just going to, to college where, uh, especially on a music course and a performance course, you very much have to be your own boss. You have to look after yourself and be very self-motivated, very self-disciplined. And, um, well, let's say I spent three or four years... Uh, <laughs> I, I learning how to be self-disciplined. <laughs> well, learning a lot about um, the local hostelry, hostelries and um, what the best uh, Indian takeaways were and mm. restaurants. Mm. And I uh, played a mean game of pool as well. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of a culture shock as far as the, um, the, the practice element and, and just regulating your time so that you did the necessary mm. work. But I've got to stick up for the fact that I think these days students have it a lot easier than they used to because when I went to college in Manchester back in the 70s no halls of residence then you know one day I was up in mum's apron strings then they dropped me off at my dates flat bed sit and then off they went and I thought what do I do now how yeah. do you open a tin of beans you yeah, know but these days you've got you've got um, they've got halls of residence they have the laundry done for them and the, all the rest of it it's a little bit easier perhaps maybe yeah and um, yeah it was, it was good times in college because um uh, at the time, there was a, a fair bit of work around, and um, people were good to me, looked after me, and as far as giving me depths, and uh, uh, played for a sixty soul band. So, so was that right from year one at college? Yes. Yeah. So I was very lucky in that respect, and yeah. good grounding in sort of uh, lots of disciplines musically. Mm-hmm. Well, Andrew, uh, in your what sounds like a very varied career, of course, we've been talking about. Um, you must have had lots of mishaps that come your way. For every brass player, that's got to be the case. Any particular ones that spring to mind for you? Uh, there are quite a f- f- well, I say quite a few. The, the, the one that stands out um, is quite uh, memorable for all the wrong reasons. Um, I'll protect the innocent by mentioning no names, but uh, my best friend at college, um, sadly her father passed away, and she asked me if I'd be uh, willing to place some, uh, some Mozarts at the funeral service because uh, her dad was a big fan of Mozart. So um, I was also tasked with booking the organist and um, passed all the details on of the pieces and all the hymns to be sung at the, the funeral service and turned up at uh, the crematorium about half an hour before the service was due to start. No sign of the organist, but uh, he was sort of renowned for being sort of, sort of last minute Charlie as far as turning up. So I wasn't too bothered. Quarter to two was getting a little bit panicky. Ten to two was getting quite concerned. The superintendent of the crematorium at five to two came up and asked me if I could play the organ myself, and <laughs> that was then getting into very worrying uh, territory. 
Uh, at about one minute to two, he um, he finally arrived, cool as a cucumber, um, walked down the middle aisle, uh, kicked off his shoes and sat at the organ and said, right, what are we playing? And I said, um, the music that we discussed via email. He said, oh, what's that then? <laughs> so I produced the, the, uh, the, the pieces that have been uh, requested, uh, the Mozart pieces, and um, I said, and the hymn tunes. And he said, what would they be? And I said, I rattled off the three names. He said, I know two of them. What's, what's, what's the third one then? I said, it's, it's a Welsh hymn tune. Um, well, I'm not familiar with that. You've got the music though, haven't you? And I said, no. Oh, I don't have that one. So we're cool. frantically looking through the hymn books uh, that are there uh, on the organ console. Uh, couldn't find it, despite the fact that it was a very well-known um, Welsh hymn tune. So by which time now the, the service had started, so we we played the funeral cortege in with Vojtěch um, Sepeta, I think it was, um, initially. Then we did the first hymn tune, so that was okay. So we're in the middle now of um, one of the tributes, and um, luckily the organ in this particular crematorium is in a, a sort of alcove in a recessed area, so we weren't quite in full view of the congregation. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, frantically looking through all these hymn books, looking for <laughs> said hymn, which didn't exist. Um, so I'm now down to Plan W, which is actually on the back of the order of service, writing out the hymn tune, in very, very bad handwritten <laughs> notation. So my handwriting and uh, music notation is not the best at the best of times anyway. But given that my hand is shaking so much now, um, <laughs> oh. so I'm writing out the, the, the melody line of this hymn tune and the organ is saying, is, is that a B flat or an A flat? That's how bad it was. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, the, the clock is ticking and then we come to the said moment and I think that my whole life is just going to end very horribly in this very uh, public way and uh, he just sticks it up on the on the stand and plays it now if you were a regular church goer or chapel goer you might think that some of the chords were a little bit quirky but just you know someone's individual slant on the hymn tune and they sang their hearts out and everything was fine um, we got to the end of the service and I was a gibbering wreck by then uh -huh. and my friend came up to me and thanked me for uh, my contribution to the service and uh, said how wonderful it was and she could see that something was wrong um, and I said you wouldn't believe me if I told you, I said I'll save you for another day. She said no please tell me what's wrong, you, you look very uh, unsettled and I said that's one way of describing it um, and I explained to her um, what, I, what I hadn't realised at the time was that I'm so used to playing hymn tunes with, uh, in sort of an accompaniment sense, playing a, a B-flat instrument, that I'd actually written it out in the wrong key as well for him because it was too high for, for voice. Okay. So what he'd actually done was harmonise it as he went along um, and he'd also transposed it because <laughs> it was in uh, not in concert pitch but in sort of relative... Yeah. B flat pitch, if you like. Mm -hmm. So um, I asked him how he'd done it, and he said, "Well, we could see, you know, it was a traditional Welsh hymn tune. I, I just sort of uh, guessed the idiom that uh, minor key, sort of. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> but uh, that uh, that must have been the longest thirty-five minutes of my life ever. And how? So just, to, just to, yeah. So just to clarify, nothing sounded wrong at all. Nothing. The odds 
chord may have been mm. slightly different, you know, different inversion or something like well, that's, that. Th- that's a different end. I was expecting you to come up with saying you know, just pure cacophony, but that's amazing that no. you know, it was all credit to him, I suppose. Oh, yes, you know, you shortened your life. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I was half thinking of jumping in the box and, and joining the deceased. But yeah. uh, it was uh, the scariest uh, half an hour or so of my life. You know, I'm shaking just thinking about it now. <laughs> I suppose. My worst conducting moment was uh, taking a, a concert with the Tonga Lice Bands and uh, coming out for the first item of the concert, bowing to the audience and turning around and facing the band, picked up the baton and there was no music on the stand. Uh, <laughs> so I had to turn back to the audience, say, I'm sorry, I'll be back in a second and go and get the music from uh, behind stage. Um, <laughs> in terms of uh, playing... I suppose I had a bad moment on, if anyone knows Bernstein's Chichita's Stams, I played at the Llandaff Cathedral, and the very end of the piece, the work finishes with a, a muted trumpet and harp, um, very quietly, and I hadn't checked my mute well enough to make sure they were secure, and I actually fell onto a stone floor and bounced many, many times, <laughs> all the way through um, the, the, the last few bars. So I was in flavour of the month there uh, with the rest of the orchestra, particularly <laughs> the conductor. Brass banding, I suppose I've got two. The worst one has to have been the national finals where uh, I was overzealous in listening to the results and thinking uh, that I'd heard the drawn uh, number for the winning band being number four and jumping up in the air like an idiot thinking we'd won the nationals and it was 14. <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't uh, my my best moment mm. and on the playing side of things I think playing um, New Jerusalem for the second time and splitting the very first notes um, at the Ebervale contest wasn't quite as uh, glorious a, a, mm. a moment as in uh, Royal Albert Hall really. <laughs> <laughs> okay so you've had you've had the sort of cock-ups on stage but you yourself have been involved in uh, a couple of hair-raising moments haven't you? Yes well um, playing uh, the offstage part for the New Jerusalem at um, the national finals. Um, first of all, nearly turning up on the day without my instrument because I'd been practicing and packed in a rush halfway up the A470 near Pontypridd and discovered that my instrument actually <laughs> wasn't in the case. Um, but I did have my brand new shoes that I bought, especially for the contest, which in the end didn't actually get to wear because uh, I made too much noise. Um, <laughs> going back and forth from the band to the offstage position. So uh, when it came to contest day, we decided that um, the offstage uh, position best for our band would would be at the top of the steps, um, just behind the band. Uh, some bands were playing up in the gods and mm-hmm. just playing with three uh, players on the top end. Um, so I had to walk back and forth from the top of the steps to play in the band and then back out, hence the reason I wasn't able to wear my shoes. Mm-hmm. But just as I was starting to play, and bearing in mind that New Jerusalem starts with just this lone cornet player playing which is, which is the voice of God the isn't voice it? of God mm. and someone who happened to know me started talking to me <laughs> which was rather off-putting as you're trying to psych yourself up ready to play that first top G mm. and hoping to God that you're not going to split it and send it yeah ricocheting around the the Albert Hall and those are the sort of embarrassing moments. what about the you know we call it in the business corpsing when the whole band or the whole orchestra just can't stop googling because something's happened you must have had corpsing at some time. Um, 
Yes, that has happened. Um, <laughs> I'll protect the names of the innocent. Uh, there was there, there was one incident in Llandaff Cathedral where we played a Christmas carol concert and for added effect, the uh, cathedral staff thought it would be very effective to turn the lights down low as um, we played one of the carols. Unfortunately, they turned it down so low that nobody could see the words to the uh, <laughs> hymn sheets or the musicians see the music, so we just gave up playing and uh, everyone sang unaccompanied and made up the words for those who didn't know the words. <laughs> Did the audience spot that? Uh, just a lot. Yes. <laughs> uh, I can remember when I was doing Marla 5 in uh, in Litchfield Cathedral and it was um, uh, on makeshift uh, stage, which is at the west door on, on it was really, I suppose, railway sleepers and, and uh, scaffolding and right in the very quietest bit of the slow movement luckily none of the brass playing somebody about four rows from the front seemed to explode from every available orifice it seemed to be uh, <laughs> a cough a splutter and a yell he'd fallen asleep obviously and had a nightmare and it was right in the quietest bit of the thing the conductor the whole orchestra began bouncing uh, including the conductor who was biting his finger because he was laughing so much. Uh, and then as I was sitting, <laughs> our horn section was noted for, um, for giggling. They were dreadful gigglers. And because of this very rickety stage we were on, halfway through all this, everybody's music started flapping back, the stands flapping backwards and forwards, because the horns bouncing up and down had set up a sort of a sympathetic <laughs> wave along the whole, whole line, and the whole music started wobbling, the whole orchestra and us were just wobbling while this man, completely oblivious to what he'd done, uh, while the strings carried on trying to play the, the slow movement of Marla 5. Quite a good moment, that one. Well, that's a case of things going awfully wrong, but in your new career, things are going very, very right as well in your, in your for example, your brass band performances. Any ones that are particularly you know, sticking in your mind? Thinking that that was a real highlight. Um, I've been sort of fortunate to be involved in uh, a number of good performances. Um, we... Um, with a purple patch, certainly with uh, with Stringer bands during the uh, uh, late nineties, uh, with conductors like Nick Charles and James Scott, Steve Bastable. Um, so uh, a few favourites were um, Balfour bands. Um, that was another one with Gary Katz at Pontins, where we were playing atrociously uh, right up until the night before the contest, and um, Gary very in a very understated way just pointed out the errors of our ways and um, we, we got out together and, and, and won the following day so that was a that was one where the band played really well mm. um, Club Catcher Fells at uh, Abbeville Contest the South East Wales Contest under James Scott that was another one where the band really was firing on all cylinders and mm. uh, it was one of those memorable performances on very difficult piece of music um, I suppose on a personal level uh, my hobby would be um, playing the off-stage part of uh, well, it was New Jerusalem in uh, Royal, Royal Albert Hall. I was uh, you were acting God then. I was the voice of God. Yes. <laughs> in fact, I was more nervous doing that than I was doing the um, doing the last post in the legacy. Really? Yeah. yeah so. What's well, so more at stake, isn't there? Do you think? In some respects, <laughs> I, I don't know why they should be so different, but um, it's uh, it's a totally different beast when you're contesting. People have invested a lot of time and effort uh, mm. in terms of rehearsals and expense, whatever. Um, you can't compare that with the expense, uh, uh, you know, what uh, what the last post symbolises, but uh, 
yeah, it was a, it was a nerve wracking day, that's for sure. Mm. Yeah. And um, what about the European of nineteen ninety seven? Now, I've got a note here that tells me you did rather well there. Yeah, it was a that was a, uh, a particularly good day. We um, played at the Barbican in London, representing Wales, and the format that year was that you had to play a um, an own choice piece as well as the set book um, uh, of Salamander by John McCabe. You had to play uh, an own choice piece from a certain era. If memory serves me right, it was something like between 1920 and 1940, something mm -hmm. like that. And we played Hubert um, Bath's Freedom, and that was one of those performances where everything just went absolutely spot on. And we actually won um, the own choice part of it. Um, we had a bit of a shocker on Salamander. Um, mm -hmm. Had it not been for that, we would have probably won the uh, won the overall frustrating. title. Yeah, yeah, very frustrating. But uh, it was one of those where, the, especially in the last moment, it was uh, it was really uh, really on fire. You know, special uh, special performance that. So that's one piece of brass band music which uh, you probably like. What about other? What's your favourite though? Is there such a thing as a favourite? It's one of those questions that uh, you regularly get asked and it changes on a daily basis mm. under my mood. Um, I think there's certain pieces that really do sort of feature on your favourites on your iPod or um, uh, your Walkman. I'm sure my age is not saying Walkman, am I? Um, <laughs> I've got a wind-up camera for <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I suppose the music of Edward Gregson has always been a favourite of mine and I remember growing up listening to um, Philip McCann um, playing the cadenza in Connotations. That was a big, um, mm. big piece of my youth. Um, didn't really understand the music. I was eleven years of age when I heard it first. Uh, when Dyke went up the nationals, so that was a uh, a big piece um, for me when I was growing up. Um, and latterly, his rococo, uh, rococo variations are really like that. This um, great some of his best. Yes. Um, Harmony music, I suppose, is a big favourite. Pageantry, and if I went for a non-test piece music, um, probably the Tonneson Corner Concerto. No, fantastic yeah. piece. I can remember that. My memory of that is uh, Morris Murphy playing that when he was a member of the BBC. F what was it called? BBC Northern Orchestra in those days, and he did a concert in in the hall in the role. What was then the new role, Northern Country Music. Uh, at lunchtime, he played the Haydn Trumpet Concerto with his trumpet sort of vertical, people normally play the trumpet. Mm -hmm. And then that evening in the Free Trade Hall with Harry Mortimer's men of brass, whatever, he played the Tomlinson with his cornet more on the side. And you would never guess it was the same person. You know, he played the Haydn idiomatically, mm -hmm. and then just just played like a corner play in the evening. Fantastic within sort of five hours to hear how the man was so versatile, really. I got introduced to the, the wrong way around, so to speak. Yeah, I, did, I didn't hear Morris Murphy playing it initially. I heard uh, Martin Winter performing it right. um, on his solo album. And I was um, uh, really hooked by it. It was a uh, mm. really cracking piece of music and just a shame that uh, Ernest Tomlinson doesn't appear to have written that prolifically for no. Brass Band, apart from uh, was it a little serenade, I think. Yes, that's a, I like that piece. Nice. Another part of your career, which I think is very interesting, and probably one of the most, for some people, the most envied job in the world, really, and that's playing with the, the TA band, the Territorial Army band, uh, especially the sort of gigs that you get to do. I've seen you marching a number of times. One was down to Cardiff Bay. That, uh, was it the... the um, that was Armed Forces Day. Armed Forces yeah. Day. And you marched, I think, from the centre of town all the way down to mm -hmm. there. Right. And did a marching display at the Oval Base. Indeed. And I was standing as <laughs> you walked past. 
I just caught you. It was absolutely ringing wet in that, in that uniform because oh. it was a very hot day, wasn't it? Oh, How on earth did you manage to do that and then do a marching display when you got to the uh, Oval Basin? With difficulty. It's, uh, yeah, it was a new sort of um, element of my music making. I joined the regiment band, regimental band of the Royal Welsh um, about seven years ago and um, didn't know what to expect, despite the, the fact that the guys had told me what sort of jobs the band do. But um, we, uh, we do a, a whole range of um, engagements, ranging from playing at the Rugby International uh, Millennium Stadium, uh, playing for royalty like Queen, Prince Charles. We played for Prince William's Dining Out Meal, where when he left his regiment at Bovington, we, we were the band that played for, for his meal. Um, you play last posts for uh, funeral services of uh, servicemen killed in action, sadly, but um, you know it's, it's part of what we do. So it's uh, it's been a, a new element to the to the music making, which has been really um, really interesting and quite varied. And so how much of a commitment is that then, in terms of your time? Uh, it, it's as much a, uh, as you want, really. I mean, um, they they expect full commitment, just like any other band, really. We we rehearse on a Wednesday night, um, and we're. Out, most weekends uh, with jobs ranging from mess dinners to concerts to parades um, and uh, we've got a brass quintet now which does quite a, mm. quite a fair bit of work so uh, it's, it's, it's varied and um, it, it's been a, a really enjoyable addition to, to what I do. Mm. You mentioned the Millennium Stadium of course the, the added attraction, the added carrot for doing that gig is that you get to see the match. Sadly no. No? No. What no. I thought you'd you know, no. ringside seats to watch no, the game. Sadly, we're on the bus 15 minutes after kickoff and uh, <laughs> going back to the barracks. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit of, bit of a letdown for a true rugby fan like myself. I'd love to be uh, staying there, mm. but uh, no, we, we don't get to stay for the games nowadays. Well, that's a surprise. I always thought because I know when BTM used to do game matches there, they, they had seats, didn't they? Yeah, uh, they've obviously decided they're going to sell the seats uh, for mm. copious amounts of money rather than give okay. them. But I mean, let's talk about something scary that happened just recently, but potentially scary. Mm -hmm. But you were Mr. Cool, weren't you? Now, you must have been sort of, you know, you've gone viral, if I might say so, <laughs> recently. <laughs> it looks like anyway. Tell us about that story because that's you're fairly famous now, aren't you? Um, yes, I've some fairly good. Uh, publicity so to speak I was um, tasked with um, performing the last post at the um, recent Wales v South Africa Rugby International at the Millennium Stadium which coincides with Remembrance Sunday and the Rugby International that's uh, closest to uh, Remembrance Sunday they always commemorate Remembrance with the last post at the at the game so uh, uh, I was asked on the, the Wednesday before to uh, to play it for the regimental band, the Royal Welsh, and uh, so you're in full pith helmet at the bottom of the Yeah, and uh, mm. yeah, sort of uh, slightly bigger audience than I'm used to. Sort of. How did you feel? Come on, I was 70, 70 odd thousand plus the all. Well, the pressure was on because it was only sixty eight that day then. So oh, was nothing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, it's I mean, the potential audiences at home and everything. I mean, that 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 is it must be. You can talk about it now because it's gone, yeah. but potentially the biggest custard pie in your face in your career, that could be, couldn't it? it, it because it, 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 that's it for anybody who doesn't know. I mean, that, that, you're in Splitsville then, aren't you? You know, you've got all the open harmonics. Uh, luckily, you're playing it on an instrument which is comfortable with a corn as opposed to a bugle, which is probably harder, is it? That's true. I mean, you never think that playing a C major arpeggio could be so hard. Mm. Uh, but the only 
way I got through it was to think that whenever you play the last post, regardless of, of whether it's to 70-odd thousand people uh, and millions on TV, or whether it's two or three people in a, a small private family mm. service uh, at uh, an ex-comrade's um, funeral service, that whenever you play it, it is the most important piece of music and you've got to get it right. Mm. Um, so you try and take it very dispassionately in some respects because right. you realise the significance of it to every single individual that you, mm. you play it to. So um, I think that's the way I got through it was uh, just to think... What sort, of, what, what sort of prior notice did you get at that? Did they tell you it was like that morning, you're already doing it? Or was it well, like, they told me on the Wednesday six months before. Panic? No, Wednesday before. The Wednesday before. Yeah. Um, but uh, added into the mix was that the band were also out on parade that morning doing a homecoming march in, Pen uh, in Penarth town centre for the 2nd Battalion mm. so I had to try and gauge it very carefully as to how much blowing to do and mm. in, not in terms of saving your lip because it's not a particularly huge blow but you're, you're always second guessing as far as marching and maybe hitting a pothole and then yeah. cracking your lip and end up with a, yeah. a big Were you chosen or did you volunteer? No I was chosen so or did everybody say I don't want to do it? <laughs> well, probably yeah it was one of those uh, classic scenes of uh, Anyone's volunteering, take one step forward. And well, I've seen the screenshots and the, well, I've seen the video. I've seen the, you know, and it's very close up there. I mean, you're not shaking, are you? Uh, or are you shaking inside? I'm one of these retrospective people. I, I, I shake more after the event rather than before and during, um, fortunately, I think. Um, but uh, it, it was. Uh, the defining moment was when I marched out because the, the, the cue that I was meant to be given wasn't given because the referee blew his whistle too early and then they made the announcement instead of the other way around. Oh. So I had to make a decision whether to move or not. So I counted the one mm. and then marched out the front to be greeted by cameraman on one knee looking up at me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was... Uh, it makes adrenaline flow a bit. I know that reading about you, you've got the Welsh Brass Trio. Mm -hmm. What is that all about? Well, the Welsh Brass Trio has been going for um, a number of years and um, we've probably played to thousands of children over, over the years. Um, basically an educational group that goes around primary schools um, delivering concerts, come uh, comedy shows, come science lessons, um, basically demonstrating the history and evolution of brass instruments since... Um, the, the time of the caveman blowing a, a conch shell and, a, and an animal horn. So Let me guess, you've got hose pipes and funnels? Hose pipes, funnels, <laughs> fishing rods, we have an eight metre roach pole, um, a watering can, two types of post horn, and then we cover the uh, music of the Tudors and Stuarts with the cornet and serpent, although I get away with playing those and I play a, a, a baran. Um, and then the standard orchestral instruments like Trumpet and French horn and trombone and tuba. So, so what's the what's the lineup normally for three? Or, and who are they? Well, apart from myself on trumpet, uh, we have Annie Reese who plays French horn mm. and Phil Dando who's the founder of the group then who plays trombone and tuba. Mm. And we've gone round schools right across Wales um, and England for that matter through uh, to the southeast in Kent, um, delivering concerts. In its halcyon days, we were doing a four-day week, delivering three, four concerts a day. Wow. 
and uh, that was. Uh, is it you say halcyon days? Not quite the same these well, days. Well, unfortunately, with cutbacks in schools and um, uh, money being uh, less freely available, obviously, um, we're now doing sometimes one, two concerts a day. This week is a good week because we've got six concerts, so it's. Uh, so who, the the schools themselves pay for that. Didn't they? Yes, they, yeah, they book so. us direct. You don't, have to, you don't have to go via the parents, do you? No, it's part of no, the school no, budget. Just book direct, and uh, um, all the schools that we visit say how much they enjoy it and how much it uh, engages with the children as far as um, teaching the the basics of um, what brass instruments are all about and what they sound like and mm-hmm. where they came from, basically. So you probably got some quite strong views about about the way that the peri- peripatetic system is. On the decline, because you, you've, you've been a victim of it, I suppose. Well, I'd say a victim. I, I, I did elect to take uh, voluntary redundancy because of the uh, uh, position that um, the new contract in, involves. Um, so, yes, I've come out of teaching after um, around 12, 13 years working for the Gwent Music Sports Service. who do some sterling work developing mm. youngsters in, yeah. in the Gwent uh, region. Um, but it is sad to see that... Uh, Music education is now pretty much going down uh, the the route of quantity rather than quality, and the strength in depth, sadly, uh, I feel won't be there in years to come. Yeah, yeah it's quite true. Yeah. So um, I'm in a positive side because you've done so much good work in the Perry system in in in, in Gwent. Any stars you can look back? You know, you see stars today. Think ah, he's one of mine, lad, or she's one of mine. Uh, it was very rewarding. I had one of my pupils who, who I didn't start from the beginning, I must confess, but um, taught her for, for a number of years, um, Rachel Williams, who uh, uh, came through the ranks and um, she now plays in the regimental band of the Royal Welsh. Mm. It was very rewarding to be stood next to your, one of your students. Yeah. And she's now gone from Call Me Sir and Mr Jones to just playing Genghis. <laughs> so um, so that's, that, that's nice to see those people coming through. And you, you obviously see a lot of um, the young players who start off uh, you know, with feet sort of barely touching the floor mm. in, the, in the junior bands. You see them coming through the ranks and ending up playing with the likes of Triliga Corey and uh, yeah. bands up north. Yeah. You're probably not old enough yet to have students' sons being introduced to you. Not was yet. No, I've, you haven't. Yet. This is no, this is my ex-student, and this is my son, and that's his son. You know, they oh God, now I am old. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we do we do have people coming up to us um, who say that they started playing as a result of hearing the Welsh Brass Trio yeah. and are now working in the profession. So, uh, Jonathan Clark, for instance, started as a result uh, of hearing the trio in a concert, and he's. Um, uh, not that long ago, come back from Hong Kong, having played with the Hong Kong Philharmonic mm. Orchestra, and uh, Hugh Morgan is another one, a freelance trumpet player, which mm. um, who started from uh, Bridgend, and uh, I think he's now with uh, Scottish Chamber Orchestra or Scottish mm. Opera. Yeah, so the, I mean the, the Welsh Brass Trio. Um, I think I saw in the audience for Nozzle Brass in St David's Hall a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, do you get up to that sort of shenanigans? <laughs> Not quite. Uh, I, I wish we played to that standard. Um, <laughs> uh, we can only dream of that. But we, we they're do just get superhuman, those people. They are. We, yeah, we yeah. do get up to uh, the odd uh, jape or two in, in the concerts, and the mm-hmm. kids love that. Um, but uh, no, Manozel is, uh, is really a sort of uh, a few steps up from what we offer mm-hmm. in, in the brass yeah. Now, I want to come back to uh, the, the young side of things, because you've got Young Ambassadors Band, which. Is that still going? 
is still going. I'm not sure how young the young ambassadors are, but uh, yes, Frank Wolf uh, does take um, the bands overseas, and I think they just uh, recently did a tour to uh, Luxembourg, and there's talk of one to uh, America possibly uh, coming up as well. Um, they were lively affairs. What, by the young ambassadors, is there an age limit to it then? I don't believe so. It's uh, mainly uh, players joined by recommendation and uh, it's a good chance to mix with players from other bands, from other sections and mm. uh, just have uh, some... Is it, a, is it a normal sized band or has it been... Exp you know, it's a normal sized band, yes. Mm. And uh, um, the years that I went on the Ambassador's Tours, uh, I was very privileged to play alongside uh, the likes of Kevin Crockford um, and players of that ilk, really, so mm. it was uh, quite a... I suppose, short time you're next to these people, you, you do learn a bit, I'm, I'm sure. Oh, huge amounts, yeah. huge amounts, and uh, the uh, the host families that we stayed with, they, they, they thought it was fantastic to have the likes of uh, mm. uh, Kevin and um, uh, such players staying in their homes as well as... Uh, Presenting concerts in their mm. their local town and village halls. Yeah, have you ever travelled far in the world? I mean, right the southern hemisphere, to like that. Be very lucky. I've been to Australia twice, and uh, New Zealand, America, and Canada. Um, and that's the beauty of music is it takes you to countries that you wouldn't necessarily have on your checklist as mm. well as choosing to go and visit them. But um, yeah, you do get to to see some interesting places. So in places like Australia, where did you perform there? Uh, we were lucky to play at Sydney Opera House with the Regimental Band of the Royal Welsh. We played um, uh, in Melbourne. Um, I mean, th these sort of venues, it begs the question, do you ever get nervous playing just in such huge venues and such important concerts? I'm a bit strange, as most people who know me will uh, testify. Uh, I tend to get more nervous after I've done something. So I, I had uh, uh, an eight-bar stand-up solo in the middle of uh, Rocky, uh, at Sydney Opera House, uh, stood up and played it, and then sat down and then thought, what the heck have I just done? And then <laughs> capitulated for the rest of the piece. But, um, yeah, it's, it's quite quite surreal when you when you think where you've been and what you've mm -hmm. done. And we're just lucky as musicians to get a chance to travel and, and, and see and do things that a lot of people can only dream of. You know? It is, that's, that's true. I'm thinking now the Corey trip to Australia, because students at the, the music college, members of the band, the chance to go on you know, 12, 14 day tour to uh, to, New, uh, to Australia, you know, and uh, the opportunity at, yeah, at that age yeah. is amazing. Yeah. I used to do concerts, in, I was in real Silabam, I used to do concerts in Abergelly. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, now what about people who, uh, when you're on tour, the social side is very um, <clears throat> very important to yes, you know, the uh, whole idea. Integral. Isn't it? Integral part of it, yeah. So anybody got the two mixed up? In terms of performance, uh, again, I, I need to sort of um, oh, yes. pr protect people's uh, reputations, whatever. But I have seen people get uh, somewhat comfortable mm -hmm. on tour, and um, what's that? Has that resulted in anything any um, disastrous or amusing things happening? Disastrous, certainly amusing for some, tragic for others. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can think of one story uh, where someone earned their nickname from uh, a, a trip to Rotterdam with uh, a certain brass band. Um, we won't mention names, uh, Tridia, sorry. And um, <laughs> we'd gone to the Europeans, and um, one of our percussionists had um, enjoyed himself somewhat that evening, and um, he'd got back to the hotel and um, 
was feeling slightly unwell, should we say, and uh, couldn't quite control himself and ended up being sick all over the steps of the Park Hotel. And uh, from then on, he was known as Ralphie. So <laughs> That's why they call him Ralphie. Rotterdam Ralph. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, all these things you do, it brings me nicely to talking about your, your, web, your website, which is andrewjonesmusic.com. Tell us a bit more about that. Plug yourself on that one. Well, I don't know. Musicians are, I tend to be slightly guilty of um, waiting for the phone to, to, to ring and uh, wondering why it doesn't. And uh, I think nowadays you've got to self-promote. And if you haven't got a website, people don't know what you do uh, what you can offer people in terms of diversity of uh, music and nine times out of ten people um, won't have an idea what a brass quintet is if they're looking for music for their wedding so mm. you've got to actually give them the opportunity to, to hear it um, so the website has got uh, different strands it um, refers to me as a player it's got a section of my conducting experience and it's also got some music samples as well so if brides are looking for music for their wedding for instance they mm. can uh, hear some samples of uh, clips of music that uh, traditionally played at weddings some uh, a little bit off the wall um, yeah. the organist uh, Janice Ball who accompanied me she uh, put a little excerpt from Star Wars on there and, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, some people go for it uh, and there's also a section then on the last post when I do um, funeral services as well, so for ex-servicemen and uh, mm-hmm. women. And I saw you putting a bit of an advert about your this conducting, uh, um, I suppose it's not the master class, but workshop. conducting workshop. workshop that, that yeah. you got it. What's the idea behind that? Well, the idea behind that is that a lot of people get foisted into uh, picking up the baton through circumstances. If the conductor's either late or can't make it and nobody's there to take a, a, a rehearsal, very often you get a baton thrust in your hand and say, you're doing rehearsal tonight and you're left to get on with it and um, it's a case of crash and burn then really, mm-hmm. which is not nice. Um, a lot of people don't get a, uh, also don't get the opportunity to conduct a band on a regular basis and, and may have the inclination and may have the desire to do it but maybe not the confidence so the thinking behind it was to set up a course for uh, budding conductors who would like to have a go but don't want to go through the potential embarrassment of making mistakes in front of colleagues and friends so it's people of a a like mind who get together Um, we have uh, a morning and an afternoon session where they get the the chance to just to go through the the very basics of conducting um, without wishing to teach people to suck eggs. Um, some people are very proficient players, mm. but conducting is a totally different right, thing. Yeah, so it's yeah. taking them through each stage step by step and assuming nothing. So ranging from choice of baton, just basic beating structures, um, to multitasking, beating with one hand and doing dynamics and stuff with mm-hmm. the other hand. Uh, and it just gives them a gentle introduction into the world of conducting and um, holding their hand in a very sort of um, hmm. caring way, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. And you're one of the few left-handed conductors, aren't you? I am indeed, yes. So actually, if you teach it to them, it'd be handy because you could do face-to-face. You can just copy you and a right-handed, well, left-handed. This was actually my <laughs> rationale there, which is that uh, I did think whether I should conduct right-handed or not. And um, I actually saw... I believe it's Pavel Berglund, the orchestral conductor, he does conduct left-handed. Mm. So I'm sticking up for the rights of um, the sinister mob and uh, sticking to left-handed. <laughs> so the, the, if anybody's now 
think so. Well, I mean, this is good because the whole idea of your conducting workshop is that they may never, ever have picked up a pattern before. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So there's nothing is expected of them. It's just have a go. No, it's, ha it's have a go. And it's fun. If you, if it's fun, but it, it's meant to be sort of um, educational and to give people that um, that prompt, if you like, to, <laughs> to make the first step um, and where nobody's they're feeling silly if they make a mistake because they're they're there with sort of um, like-minded people, kindred spirit, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. That's that, that they feel you know as relatively comfortable as you can be to trying a new skill uh, for the very first time. So details again in your website, Andrew Music, uh, yes, AndrewJonesMusic.com. Yes, if people want to drop me an email, they can send an email to AndrewJonesMusic at AOL.com and uh, happily send out some details and. So far, there's been some very good response to it, so I'm hoping to um, uh, promote it in uh, different regions as well, uh, as long as there's sufficient numbers. So, um, so far, so good, and um, I'm hoping to run one in Pembrokeshire, one in the West Wales area, and then possibly South East Wales as well. Good. Well, I wish you all the very best with that one. Thank you. Just confirm that then, okay, I think earlier on I said andrewjonesmusic.com is the website, and the email address is andrewjonesmusic at aol.com. AOL, so get that clear then, that's fine, that's fine. Uh, what else can I ask? I know. If you had a time machine, and you could go back to any any performance at any time by any player or any conductor, which do you think it would be? Having been to St Mark's in Venice, I think I'd love to go back and hear some Gabrielli played in situ where it actually all started, because that was sort of where brass music really started to take off with the antiphonal brass, and in such a setting it would sound quite something else. Um, from a brass band point of view, everyone talks about the uh, Black Dyke performance of Lourdes when Horace Murphy and Jeff Whittam were the principal players there. Mm -hmm. I think I'd have loved to have been there for that performance. And from a solo performance, I think, um, again, Morris Murphy was uh, a very influential figure. He was um, playing at a, a recital in St David's Cathedral in Pembrokeshire when I was about 11. And although I'd been playing for a good few, well, for about four years uh, up until then, he was instrumental, excuse the pun, in being that sort of catalyst and that sort of drive to, to want to take it more seriously and take it on to another level hearing mm. him playing and, and going back to that recital I think that was a quite a yeah. pivotal moment that's great so it's interesting especially I like, I like the St Mark's Venice thing you know, yeah it's uh, yeah. unusual because most people want to wouldn't want to do that, but that, I think that's fascinating that, that you just see the, the see, see the venue and, and hear it in situ and uh, mm. that, that would uh, that would be quite special I think. so while we're going backwards in the time machine um, could you go back to meet yourself at the beginning of your musical career now, now that you're so much wiser and a bit older? So if you met yourself at the very beginning of your career, what sort of piece of advice would you give yourself before setting off? Well, first thing, I think I'd try to explain to myself the scales aren't restricted to fish and Weight Watchers. <laughs> um, I think listening to as much music as possible. Although, having said that, I did listen to a lot of, um, not just brass bands, I listened to orchestral music, um, despite the fact I wasn't involved in orchestras until um, I was about 16 years of age. So, um, to get as much of a, 
a broad grounding in all types of music, I think. Mm. And in hindsight, I think during my college days, certainly practice a lot more and also to try improvising. Because when I played with the college big band, everyone had a go except me because I was too scared of mm. making a mm. pillock of myself in front of everyone. So I think uh, having a go and learning by experience rather than saying no and still not being able to do it. Yeah. Well, Andrew, stroke, Genghis. You know, we've chatted many, many times over the years about usually about how badly or well we thought we played at a contest and sort of wondering how we didn't get any better. This, is, this conversation has been really fascinating because I've learned more about you than in this last few minutes or last half an hour or so than I've uh, known about all your life. It's very interesting. And of course, being so much younger than me, you've got a long way to go as well. So just want to wish you continued success with all that you're doing um, with the, now with the new conducting school and, uh, and, and, and your web page and... Brass, brass trio and, and the military band and etc 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 brass bands big bands jazz bands gastric bands <laughs> you know it <laughs> yeah. but, uh, I'd like to put on record my thanks to you as well because um, I don't know how much you realise but you, you were quite an influential figure during my college days as well as conducting so I do take a, a lot of my oh. uh, influence from your um, your tutelage and well, thank you for that. You're still left handed. I'm still left handed, yes. I'm still using the wrong hands, <laughs> as people call it. But uh, I, I did learn a lot, and uh, a lot of my one liners I have um, uh, unashamedly pinched from you. So yeah, they're copyright, stop that. They're copyright, yes. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, anyway, many, many thanks to Andrew for, for joining me today. And um, hope you enjoyed listening to the Andrew, Andrew's story as much as I've enjoyed uh, coaxing them out of you. And that's just about it for, for this particular um, edition of uh, Leslie and Brass. Uh, but thanks very much for listening to it and I hope you've enjoyed it. Please tune in next time for the third episode where I will be interviewing Andy Smith, who is the principal cornet player with the Flowers Band in Gloucester. He recently won the Soloist Prize at the Grand Shield Contest in Blackpool, which helped his band to win the contest and gain promotion to the British Open. So, thanks for listening and catch you on the next podcast.